Awake in the Dream Radio with Laura Eisenhower and Dr. Dream. Raising your frequency and expanding your consciousness one guest at a time. Welcome, everyone. It is Tuesday, March the 19th, 2013. You found yourself at Awake in the Dream Radio. And um, we're thrilled to be here tonight, and we're so excited about tonight's show um, that we're thinking uh, just to go ahead and dive right into the interview. And if we have some time left afterwards, we will um, go ahead and, and tap in to the rest. Well, this is certainly an exciting evening for me, um, really for all of us. We have Connie Baxter Marlowe and Andrew Cameron Bailey as our guests, and um, a little bit of deja vu in this for me as um, we were speaking um, in the last week, putting this together, um, realizing that, uh, I mean, not that we ever had forgotten it, but uh, in 2007, we did a uh, video interview in Sedona, and so much has happened since then, and it's it's been amazing to reconnect with, with Connie and Andrew, and it's 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 exciting because of, of the energy they carry and what they're about. The, they are paradigm shifters. They're visionary filmmakers, futurists, social philosophers, and what they envision is a positive future for humanity. Coming from divergent life experiences, they've reached similar conclusions. The prevailing paradigm is missing important information about the nature of reality, and they challenge a number of basic assumptions, which has driven humanity's behavior for millennia. And it's, it's amazing to me. Their book is called uh, The Trust Frequency, and I am just absolutely beyond honored to introduce to all of you, Connie and Andrew. Are you here with us, Connie and Andrew? Are you here, Mark? We're here, Dr. Green. And, um, yeah, the trust frequency. How about that? <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Laura. It's wonderful to be here. So I know you both come from different backgrounds, but you have much lightness as far as uh, your inner truth. What are some uh, similar conclusions similar conclusions that you both share regarding the prevailing paradigm? Well, um, we've, we've, we've come at it from different places. And my, why, how I came to this realization that humanity was actually missing information, that we were actually operating on erroneous assumptions about the nature of the universe, came to me when I saw, as a teenager, I saw Florence Nightingale and, and how much love she brought to humanity. And I just realized that humanity is just capable of such love and, and just wondered why we're not acting from that place. And it, it sent me on a search to find these missing pieces of the paradigm. And, and I came to this understanding through 
the Native Americans. I, my search led me ultimately to Santa Fe and to contact with the Native Americans and visionary elders started coming into my life and I, from spending extensive time with them and at the Hopi Reservation and the various places uh, in, in America and Mexico, I came to realize that, that what, what they understand is, is truth, is the true nature of the universe. It's not a belief system. That they're resonating to something that is outside of the, the box of the scientific paradigm. So that, that led me for decades to, to create forums for them to share what they know. And I was bringing them to here. I'm in, we're in Aspen, Colorado right now. And I was bringing them here to the, to the Roaring Fork Valley and, and sharing their cosmology, their way of knowing. And so this, this trust frequency paradigm evolved out of that. And Andrew brought a tremendous amount from his life experiences yeah, so I'm I'm British. I grew up in South Africa. Moved there when I was a, a, a young child. Got to grow up in this truly amazing country called South Africa, with all of its um, contradictions and and uh, some problems and so on. But boy, what a wonderful place to grow up! And at some point in the mid '60s, I came across a term. I think it was in a Life magazine or a Time magazine. The term was cosmic consciousness. And at the time, people were starting to go to India, starting to seek out spiritual paths, and there seemed to be something really going on. And for me, the attraction was to America, and specifically to Northern California. So I left South Africa in 1969, traveled across, sailed across the Atlantic on a sailboat, actually. I like to travel very slowly and really appreciate every moment of the journey, and got myself to Santa Cruz, California in January of 1970 actually landed on these shores on Thanksgiving Day of 1969. Looking back, that's like, oh, right, that's when the Mayflower Pilgrim started, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, or were my ancestors. Connie being a Mayflower descendant. And pretty much right away got myself deeply involved in, what should we say, the consciousness movement. I was literally hitchhiking from Los Angeles up to Santa Cruz, where I'd met someone in London. I was going to see this remarkable individual in Santa Cruz, California. I'd never been there. Hitchhiking up, I was dropped in Santa Barbara, was picked up by a gentleman who um, had to make a stop along the way. So the stop turned out to be the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. (laughs) I'd never heard heard of such a place, and I'd never been in hot spring baths on the ocean in my life before, and that was quite extraordinary. But Along the way, he said, well, why are you going to Santa Cruz? And I said, well, I met this guy named Ralph Abraham in um, in London before I left, the very night before I left to join the sailboat that I sailed across the Atlantic on. He said, Ralph Abraham is my business partner. So I think that's called synchronicity. <laughs> and, and right around about there, the magic kicked in, and, and a huge opening uh, occurred for me. I was... Um, I was both an athlete, I was a surfer and a spear fisherman and a sailor and all those good things. And I was an academic, I was a chemistry professor, I was um, I was very com- competent academically, I was very competent physically, but the whole spiritual, the realm of the heart, was something I didn't know very much about, and that's what kicked in for me right there, January 1970. Fascinating, and so t- t- tell me, how many years have the two of you been together? We're coming up on the big one zero. We'll we'll have been together for ten years on October the sixth. 
Yep. October 6th of this year, we met at the Omega Institute in upstate New York in, the, in a gathering of indigenous wisdom keepers of shamans in October of 2003. And we kind of looked at each other and got right to work. <laughs> it was just really obvious from our first meeting that, that it was divinely intended that we come together. Uh, I, I recognized from, from the minute Andrew opened his mouth and started talking about his, his youth because he, he had, an, had asked basically the same questions I had, which was, how is humanity going to wake up? What is, what is it going to take? When he was 26, he started a foundation. You could tell them about that. Right. Um, that let me know that he was a big picture thinker that was resonating to the this, this same vision and mission that I was. And he was a photographer and a filmmaker. I'd been a photographer all my life and, and was making a film, some films at the time that we met. So it was, um, was a match made in heaven, they say. So I was going to say, the it was the first big project for the two of you, the movie In Search of the Future? Yes, it was. Well, we started. Well, actually, I was working on a film series at the time. We do a lot of work with the, the founding of America and, the, and, the, and the, the, the spiritual destiny of America. And I was working on that uh, film series at the time uh, with Henry David Thoreau, um, a a unique look at uh, Thoreau and his involvement with the Native Americans, uh, the Mayflower Pilgrims and their 50 years of peace and friendship with the Native Americans. I happen to be a Mayflower descendant and it seems like my ancestors are are driving me to, to, to bring something to the table that can actualize the vision that the founders of this country had uh, for humanity. So I was working on that, and he had actually uh, been uh, been involved with the Roth School on Long Island. You could tell them about that. Yeah. You know, just uh, interestingly enough, he had been through all of the founding of America. All the tell them what you the Roth School is is a, is a is a big deal in um, in East Hampton, Long Island, New York at this moment, and it was just beginning back then, and I was involved early on as photographer and videographer, documentarian of this essentially traveling school. And one of the amazing journeys we did, it was called Birth of a Nation, like the famous movie, and actually the first major motion picture ever made. And we went on this journey to all of the southeastern United States significant uh, geographical locations, like Colonial Williamsburg, like Jamestown, uh, of course, like Philadelphia and Washington. And, um, yeah, so I had a whole lot of information that I had just been assimilating as, a, as an immigrant. I come in here as a British immigrant in 1969. My American history left a lot to be desired, and that became fascinating. Then I meet this woman who goes all the way back to the first boat. I mean, come on. To so the first British immigrant. Yeah. <laughs> she's, a, she's an ancient British immigrant. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh, I love that. You know what he looks like, Dr. Green. He looks like Thomas Jefferson himself. <laughs> so uh, so this, this team has got some work to do is inspiring America to its highest and best self. Tell us, tell us about the, the this first film, um, In Search of the Future. I love how both of your diverse backgrounds brought really important pieces together for this. Yeah, that was that was what was so cool is that it's as though we had laid all the groundwork, we'd done all the pre-production, 
And being from South Africa, and my mother at that point was still alive. She lived in 94, and she passed away just not even two years ago, 18 months ago. But at that point, she was hmm, 2004, almost 10 years ago. Yeah, and one thing I want to be sure people know we're talking about, not about the film series, which was the American Evolution, Voices of America. We're we're talking about our second film, which is In Search of the Future. In Search of the Future, What Do the Wise Ones Know? So I had been working, my background there was, I, with my former spouse, had been working with the Bushmen of the Kalahari, who are the world's oldest people. They genetically go back to, they are the descendants of the first people of Africa and therefore almost certainly the first people on this planet. They might be the ones who stayed behind when the various migrations occurred and and people went out of Africa and traveled all over the world and then came back. Um, The Bushmen might be the people, the ones who stayed behind. Don't know. Their closest relatives are the the pygmies in the the Congolese jungle. Anyway, we had, my ex and I had established a nonprofit and made friends with these amazing people in Southern Africa. And as she was from South Africa as well, and we both had living parents at that time, we we were going back and forth from New York to um, Cape Town, and Johannesburg and South Africa, and then taking journeys up into the Kalahari. So when I met Connie, and I had just, my divorce had just hit me like a ton of bricks, and the first journey to go see my mom, Connie and I took a side trip and went up into the Kalahari. This was 2004, and laid the groundwork for what became this film. Was actually on the plane to South Africa yeah, that we came up with the uh, the concept for the film and landed. We we had all our equipment with us and uh, we're 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 mom and pop gorilla filmmakers. So we are we carry our stuff and we uh, we he I shoot him he shoots me we both shoot the the folks that we're interviewing and um, we brought together. All the Native American, not all the Native Americans, but the, the Native American people I knew, and the people that he knew. So we 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 brought people into this film that we've known for 20 to 40 years, including Ralph Abraham, who's the, my very first and only American. I when I landed here on Thanksgiving of 1969, I knew one person on this entire continent. That was Ralph Abraham in Santa Cruz, California. He's very much in the film as one of the wise ones in the film. So it's not exclusively indigenous. I think we have as many as 14 indigenous um, groups, ethnic groups represented. But we also have a number of really interesting, wise, cool folks of different cultures as well. Yeah, John Rennish is a a business uh, futurist and very, very much plugged into this bigger picture thinking is in the film as well. And Ralph, I don't know if you said that he, he's the father of chaos theory. Right. Ralph's one of the great mathematicians of, of, of the 20th century, the father of, of chaos theory. I'm sure most of your listeners would know what that is. It's a mathematical science. Mm-hmm. And also a, a frequent presenter at the Esalen Institute, which was my first stop on that hitchhike north to Santa Cruz to go and con- connect with Ralph. And I hadn't seen him for three months. I met him briefly, literally, in a microbiotic restaurant in London at my little farewell party. And um, showed up three months later, and he totally changed my life. He just introduced me to everybody I needed to meet, including people like Ralph Messner, who you may have heard of, and um, a series of other extraordinary people in the consciousness movement in Northern California in 1970. 
which was about three years after the Summer of Love. I sort of, sort of was headed for San Francisco and the, the Summer of Love. I got there in the winter about discontent, I think. <laughs> San Francisco, winter of January 1970. It was bleak. It was dark. It was kind of scary. The Haight-Ashbury had really rather alarming-looking individuals selling drugs on the street corners, and I took, got there and sort of looked around and said, I don't think so. <laughs> but what had happened, of course, is everybody had moved back to the land, back to the country. The back-to-the-land movement had occurred. And amazingly, miraculously, Santa Cruz was um, a place where many people had either moved to or had come up to the Summer of Love from that part of the world. Santa Cruz is an amazing, amazing town. Mm. Brand new university there at the time. Santa, you know, UC Santa Cruz opened in 1967 or 68. And I got there when Ralph Abraham in London said, and I was pursuing my, my PhD, and I was thinking... Berkeley or USC or UCLA, just colleges I'd heard of. I'd never heard of UC Santa Cruz. And he said, why didn't you come to UC Santa Cruz? I said, what's that? I didn't, I didn't even know what it meant, UC Santa Cruz. It's like, <laughs> I see UC. Yeah, I was like, what is that? He said, come, you'll love it. It's a brand new campus, University of California, 15,000 acres of redwood trees, view of the ocean, you'll love it. I said, Ralph, I'll see you there. And three months later, I showed up on his doorstep. Oh wow! So I graduated from Berkeley in 1968, so I had some connection with that neck of the woods and that kind of thinking. Except I was I was a preppy in Berkeley in the in the 60s. I brag about it. Uh, Are you still there? Hello, Andrew. Okay. Hello? Yeah. We just had a message about pressing four for the subconference. We don't know what that meant. (laughs) Okay, we'll cut this out. Um, Sounds like an edit. (laughs) Anyway, I was saying saying that I had graduated from UC Berkeley in 1968 and was a preppy in Berkeley in the 60s. I'd come in from New England and uh, New England women's schools and... um, it set me free to be there in that mentality and that way of knowing and way of seeing, but I didn't uh, I didn't join the, the hippie movement at the time, and that actually became sort of a reverse discrimination because I I didn't fit the mold mm. of of the hippie movement, but it was a very influential time in my life to right. to be there on, and on the West Coast in those times. Mm. And meanwhile, crossing the Atlantic, my hair had gotten longer and my beard had come in for the first time in my life, and I fit right in. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, one thing about, about the film, In Search of the Future, is, is it was thrilling for me when this film was finished by Andrew and the the editor that that they brought the key pieces of information that I wanted to bring to the table, that I had gleaned from my 20 years with these astounding humans. You know, I call Wallace Blackout was one of my closest friends for 15 years, and I always called him a walking phenomenon because of what he experienced and what he was desperate to communicate to the world. And um, it was it was just thrilling to me that this film, In Search of the Future, brings to the table extraordinary information from these, these visionary shamanic elders. Um, one 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 thing of which is is that we come from the stars. You know, the native people 
they, they, they laugh at the whole concept of evolution and and know that we come from the stars, from the star people, you know, and they have ongoing relationships with the star people. You know, those people we call aliens, they said, you know, the, those people you, referring to us, call aliens, they call them the star brothers, the star people, and um, so so our film is, is a great companion piece to the Trust Frequency book because it's the actual native people speaking and other visionary people who are plugged into a bigger reality speaking from that place, from that knowing, from those experiences that take us outside of the the, the scientific paradigm, the, the little box we've locked ourselves in with our assumptions. Mm-hmm. Wait, can you can you tell tell us a little bit about the trust frequency and the ten assumptions for a new paradigm? Yeah, absolutely. Question: Did you get a copy of the book? I believe we sent you one. Did yes. you receive it? Yes, you we did, did receive it. it. Yay! Okay, are you so you're able to look at it? Yes, we've been looking at it. We haven't, of course, been able to read it yet, but um, we will get around to it. It looks looks very good. So, on the cover, do you see an interesting equation? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, what about that? Um, Coco Pelli equals MC squared. Yeah. What on earth could that mean? I mean, are we out there or something? <laughs> you, <laughs> made, you did mention um, something about uh, all that time in the late 60s, but uh, w- what is that about? Yeah, well, it was this late 60s thing. You know, I met this crazy dancing flute player from the Southwest. His name was Coco Pelli. And I said, hey, you look a lot like Albert Einstein to me, but that was just his hairstyle. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, that equation, I'm very, very serious about this equation. We had a whole other cover for the book, and I was just looking for a symbol that would represent the indigenous wisdom of the native people of this entire planet. And I was literally going through Google Images looking for an, a symbol or an image that would represent that, because E equals MC squared is a wonderful representation of science of Western science. It is, mm-hmm. in a sense, the peak of what we've accomplished so far in science, although we've come a long way in 100 years since Einstein. Coco Pelli, that symbol, that dancing flute player, the, you know, the trickster, the seed planter, the fertility deity that he is, and all of the wisdom, the knowledge, the connectedness to the universe that that symbol represents became this image on the front of our book. And just to say that instead of E equals MC squared, because his his form, his body is almost an E, he's sort of curved around like an E, and to say Coco Pelli equals MC squared to me means the wisdom of the indigenous people is exactly equal and equivalent to MC squared, the wisdom of the West, of our rational science that we've been able to bring to the party. And the quantum science, you know, Einstein with this, this equation, you know, took took science took a leap, took science uh, a leap, and and into the the quantum understanding of the nature of things. And and I realized after 15 years of being with Wallace Black Elk and other elders that that quantum physics actually explains what these people know and what they experience. Someone handed me the book The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. And when I read that, I got it. I'm like, oh my God, here it is. Then, you know, this is what, this is the reality Wallace has been trying to communicate to us, and and it and it helped me to to bring it forth 
in a way that people can hear it because we're so locked into the into the scientific paradigm and the and the logical linear look at things that um, this quantum science is is busting that open and 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 bringing an, a, a, a means of understanding what this reality that we all know that we all resonate to but that we we shut ourselves off to. Um, quantum science is saying, yeah, it's okay. You can go there now. You know, we've proven it scientifically. We're all connected. We're all one. <laughs> you know, the time to lay down the weapons of war. Forget it. It's obsolete. It's ridiculous. You know, that's mm-hmm. going to happen very soon. So I, I love that, that science has caught up with what was already there. Now, take us through some definitions before we dive into the book because the languaging and understanding exactly where you're coming from is important. So, the first question would be, well, what is the trust frequency? All right, so let me preface that with the opening prayer, which is from a Native American named Wayne Eagle Boy. Do you mind? Um, because it just seems appropriate to, before beginning to talk about the science or the intellectual aspects of it at all, to express the intention of this book. So the intention of the book is actually called the opening prayer, and it goes like this. Grandfather, creator of all that exists, with this sacred pipe, hear my prayer. As the new day dawns, let all people begin anew to walk the good red road of life. May we forget our differences. May we remember our likenesses. Let us hear what we have not heard. Let us see what we have not seen. It is the spark of the universe the oneness of all life. In such a way, may we be blessed, blessed in a sacred manner. And that is from the 1980s, from Wayne Eagleboy. And that's the best answer I could come up with to your question. What is the trust frequency? It is precisely expressed in that indigenous piece of poetry. Now, of course, we can go into uh, the way we, we ourselves have expressed it in the book. We, we In our definitions, we say... It's it's a place where the soul's destiny awaits more abundance, balance, freedom, and joy than we can fathom, where the true nature of the universe is experienced. And what we're saying with this, this trust frequency concept is that everything has a frequency and that there are a variety of frequencies and we have the free will to choose our frequency. And we're pointing this out to people. We're showing people that what the nature of the universe is from our perspective and how to align with it and thereby shift one's frequency into a higher vibratory rate where the laws are different. You see? We're saying that the laws in each frequency are different. So the, the laws here in the frequency that we're in, which is a lower frequency, one could call it the fear frequency, if one so chose, Um, the laws that look immutable here aren't immutable. They're only immutable here in this frequency. So we individually and collectively can shift our frequency. You know people who, who... who look like they lived a, a blessed life, you know, just magic happens for them here, there, everywhere, you know, and and so it doesn't matter what one's sister's doing, what one's 
child is doing, what one's brother, whatever. It doesn't matter. We have the individual free will and ability to shift our frequency and move into a a higher place. Um, Henry David Thoreau, in his conclusion to Walden, says that when one walks confidently in the direction of his dream, he will pass certain boundaries. Walking confidently in the direction of your dream is to trust, to act in trust. He will pass certain boundaries. He will experience a success unexpected in common hours. You see, we can't even imagine because our minds are conditioned to believe that this is the only reality. These are the only laws. This is the only reality. So we can't even imagine. So experience a success unexpected in common hours. He will, um, then he will, uh, the laws that apply to him will be expanded or new laws will be made in his favor and he will live with the license of a higher order of beings. And that's, and that's from Thoreau, which basically also expresses the entire book. It's all in that little quote from Walden. Yeah. Right? Yeah. See, Thoreau was a mystic. And uh, that's what we're, we point out in our, in our work with Thoreau. And we present at the Thoreau Society and uh, we're, we're bringing a, a unique perspective on Thoreau because, because we see from this, this bigger picture, we can see how he and Einstein and, and, and most of the people who, who made a difference in this world did see from this larger perspective and acted from that place and transformed society and reality. Hmm. Yeah, wow, this is awesome. Can you tell us about the Ten Assumptions? I love it because, you know, of course, there were the Ten Commandments, and when I look over the Ten Assumptions, it just feels so right. You know, like this is really the energy that can help us step into something that isn't so much about law and dogma, but more about just the actual truth of the universe. Can you just let us know what assumption means and what the Ten Assumptions is all about? Yeah. Sure. But one, let's, let's do one more definition. Okay. What do you think of, of, of humanity? See, and you'll one, notice in the book there's a whole section of definitions because the way we use language, the way we use certain words, is key to understanding what we're talking about. We might mention the word love and have a completely different understanding of, the, of what that word means than the average person out there. So we've carefully defined each of these terms, and that's critical to understanding the assumptions themselves. Right. And our entire reality is based on the assumptions we make. This world that we see today, this beautiful but conflicted world, is based on the fundamental, the current fundamental assumptions of humanity. And we're saying that they're either outdated or flawed or erroneous, um, misguided in some way. And so that's the whole proposition here, is that we can look into our, our personal fundamental assumptions, which are our core beliefs, our most important belief system, which also can be thought of as our opinions or our, you know, the, our worldview, the way we see things. And if we as a species can have a good look in the mirror and realize that we've been operating on an outdated operating system, just the way your computer, when it starts slowing down and, you know, getting recalcitrant, love that word, um, <laughs> what do you do? You up you update the operating system. So that's what this book is. It's this operating system upgrade for the human being. And it starts with the definitions. So one of the important definitions is our definition of humanity. 
And that definition, we say, is that humanity is, and I'll, I'll actually read this from our, our definition. Humanity is a collection of divine, autonomous, sovereign beings who have chosen to incarnate on earth to learn and grow on their soul's journey to wholeness, each with an individual purpose and a unique gift. You see, this, this brings in the overarching act of free will that each of us gave, or the permission that we each gave when we incarnated and came to earth on this journey to wholeness. We said to the loving energies on the planet that drive all things, yes, I will go to earth and I will go on this journey to wholeness, this journey of, of integrating my soul with, with the oneness of all that is. You know, we, we come from the oneness and, and we individuate and we come to earth on this journey to, to, to learn and grow and, and out of free will choose to integrate and become that divine being and bring the divine through our actions and therefore transform society and transform the whole of the universe. Mm. That makes sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. People, you know, obviously people know what an assumption is, but an assumption is, the way we use it, a fundamental core belief which we take to be true without question. That's the problem. We have these fundamental core beliefs that we have never questioned. We inherited them as children by the age of three or five or seven years old. All of our assumptions, our most important assumptions about reality were already in place. And we didn't do that consciously. So the challenge is now to become conscious about that, to say, what do I believe? What are my ten most fundamental beliefs? Whoever asked anybody that question, excuse me, to the man on the street, would you mind telling me your ten most fundamental beliefs? You know, most of us would be flummoxed. We wouldn't have a way. I, I, I have trouble with that. You know, so let me, can, yeah, go ahead. Let me ask, what does it take then? I mean, these are, these are, this is the core belief system. This is what so many people that we see are refusing to drop the distractions to dive into. What does it take to shift this this core system, this core be- these core beliefs that that we hold individually and and most of them collectively. Yeah, oftentimes, doctor, what it takes as a doctor, you know this, a crisis, a hmm. medical crisis, a spiritual crisis, a political crisis, a climate crisis, and as you may have noticed on the book, the foreword was written by one of the world's leading visionary climate change experts. Sally Rani, interesting lady indeed. And if you, when you get around to reading, you just see what she says. Because I loved her forward. Yeah, did you read it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I started the book, so I started at the forward. <laughs> yeah, you know, we put it at the beginning for that reason. The, um, the trust frequency and ten assumptions for a new paradigm may sound very intellectual or spiritual or not practical, not boots on the ground. That that forward grounds this book into a major thing that's on everybody's mind today. So your question was, what's it going to take? Same question Connie asked when she was a teenager. Same question I asked. I wrote, I wrote my first novel back in 1970-71, and it asked that very question, what is it that, what's it going to take to wake humanity up? 
Is it going to take an alien invasion? Is it going to take a nuclear war? Is it going to take something so extreme? Or is it going to take a new, that was the age of the psychedelics, is it going to take a new chemical? It changes our brain chemistry so we wake up and become conscious, intelligent, loving homo sapiens, you know? <laughs> so it's a really serious question because most people are so busy with their lives, with just paying the mortgage or whatever it takes to get through the next exam or whatever we're so distracted, or, or, you know, what's on TV or who's going to win the ball game this weekend. All of those things are such distractions, from my perspective, from the primary question, which is, what are our beliefs? Do we really believe that? And if not, how do we change it? That's the question this book poses and proposes answers to that question. Yeah, and 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 Mother Earth is, is helping. You know, all the storms, all of the, the crises that, that are coming through nature those are those are as the Hopi said. It's the time of purification. It's just it's just a a, a a way of shaking us loose from our belief systems, from our our trust that we've placed in in systems that are out of balance. And so the collapse of the economy, the everything is just throwing us onto ourselves and onto trusting a loving universe. So so we're this is is what's up. And and for all of humanity, we're, we're we're coming because we know it. It is our true nature. It is the true nature of the universe. It's just a a a, a veil that's thinning daily that's separating us from this knowledge. So it, I I have had the vision for for decades that that this can happen in a nanosecond. Um, we can change our minds in a nanosecond. And and once a tipping point of of people who've given permission to, to go there is reached, then then all of all of humanity will will wake up one morning and say, Whoa, I'm one with all of creation. Isn't it beautiful? Or something, yeah. Are you are you you must be familiar with the Omega point of Teatra Shadan? Yes. Right. So this is what, that's when did he write that? In the nineteen fifties. So a you know, a very long time ago, something was predicted. It was sort of like critical mass would be accomplished or reached or achieved by human consciousness on this planet. And the advent of the, of the World Wide Web, for example, the Internet, has connected and expanded and integrated human consciousness in an extraordinary way. And the Shadan, in fact, also... In, he, kind of predicted that. He described something long before electronics were even a reality. And you can go back to read, read something that was written 50 or 70 years ago, and it's, wait a minute, he's talking about the Internet. So there's there's something going on that's accelerating. There's an accelerating coming together. It looks, from one perspective, it looks like a crisis. It looks like it could be scary. From another perspective, it looks like the Great Awakening. Here we are. Wake up, people. Open your eyes. The scariest thing is if we stay in, in, in doing what we're doing. But the, 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 the Internet has, has created something that's never been in existence before, and that is this, this worldwide mind interconnecting instantaneously. Right. It's, it's a phenomenon, and that's bringing all the pieces of the puzzle together you know, but, so that we can see a new puzzle. We can see when the puzzle pieces are all separated... 
You can't see what that puzzle's trying what to. Pictures what the picture's going to be. I I'm chomping at the bit here. I've got to just I've got to jump in here and ask this question. I now, you know, I've been doing these interviews and things since since 2007 or something, and 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 lots recently we've been having lots of people. And I have been amazed. There, we have not been hearing of a tipping point that then takes the rest of humanity with us. What we're hearing is a divergence. You know, a a splitting off course, um, different timelines and things. So I'm very interested in this. Um, you know, hundredth monkey sort of tipping point. Um, kind of philosophy and where that's coming from and for you to just sort of explain that a little more. One thing, Rupert Sheldrake, you know, we sent you a link. I guess Rupert Sheldrake spoke, uh, did a TEDx talk that was banned from by TED. And he was he was speaking about the, the ten dogmas of science. And he spoke about the, the morphine, what is the Trust me, do you know who Rupert Sheldrake is? No, I saw that you sent me the link and his TED talk, but I, I didn't, I couldn't get to it. So he's someone who, along with um, Terence McKenna and Ralph Abraham at the Esalen Institute, did these. They called them trialogues at the edge of the West. So Rupert is a British biologist, okay? So he's a very serious research scientist, but he's also very on the cutting edge of of the, of the speculative. Um, understanding of, of, of what humanity could be and where we could be going. He is the inventor of the phrase the morphogenic field or the morphogenetic field. Uh, he's become very well known for that, and his talks absolutely challenge current science. So it's fascinating that his current book refers specifically to, uh, Laura, you were just talking about the Ten Commandments, and here we are with the Ten Assumptions, and here Rupert is with the Ten Dogmas, and what he is doing, he's just showing how each of the ten fundamental assumptions of contemporary science are just not correct. They're rotten at the roots. They actually don't work if you apply the scientific method to them. If you blindly obey them, they work fine, just like anything. The church says this, fine. Science says that, fine. As long as you don't argue, you're in the club. The minute you stand up and say, wait a minute, they take your TEDx thing down off, off the Internet, which is very interesting. And he was talking about the morphogenetic field, that, that each generation, and, and one of the elders talks about this in our film, that each, not, not, not even generation, um, that, that when, um, when a, a, a rat learns something uh, in America, that actually the rats all over the world know how to do it. Right. Um, he's, the, he's the one that did the experiments with, for example, the dog at home. And the dog's master leaves work every day at 4 o'clock and drives home. And the dog, about 10 minutes before the guy shows up at the door, the dog's there 10 minutes early, wagging his tail, excited as anything about the person coming back. And they wondered whether there was some connection or the dog knew that it was 4 o'clock or heard the sound of the car in the distance and recognized that specific car. So they did very careful double-blind experiments <clears throat> to show that the dog was actually psychically connected with the master, and they tried all sorts of things, leaving the office at different times, of course, um, coming in a different car, taking the bus, taking the subway, 
coming home in a completely different way, nevertheless, ten minutes before the door was opened, whether it was four o'clock or five o'clock or seven o'clock, Dougie sitting there wagging tail, his whole book about that. And Rupert designed those experiments. There are a series of those experiments that he's done. I think, he, yeah, he has a book called Seven Experiments That Will Change the World. And so it's very controversial because he's doing stuff that mainstream science just denies. So he is in a situation with mainstream science, which is very similar to the situation we find ourselves, that's all four of us on this show, namely what is it going to take to compel people to take another look and say, wait a minute, possibly our assumptions are not the ultimate truth. Perhaps there's another way. What if we could, you know, who would, who would deny if we could invent, reinvent a world that was free of war and poverty and separation and nations and, you know, armies counting. And, and counting and money and, and disease and, and, and misery. You know, we have created for ourselves a world that is, has its high points for sure, its Beethoven's and its Einstein's and its Mozart's and its beautiful, its beauty. But at the same time, boy, I, I think this world could use a makeover. And what yes. is it going to take? That's the big question. And we, no. we feel that we're bringing something that that people can resonate to and, and shift their understanding that will allow their heart to open. See, the difference between perception from the closed heart and fear and perception from the open heart right. and trust is completely different. Not only is it vibrationally different, but it's it, it, it engenders different behavior. It, one sees the world differently. So we've, our ten assumptions, you were asking about what are the ten assumptions, and we could go through those and, um, and just share this construct. We call it a, a construct on the nature of the universe. Between the definitions and the ten assumptions, we, we say to people that you have to take them as absolutely true as an exercise. We don't say that they are absolutely true because that would be dogma. But if one wants to transform one's reality and one's perception of reality, one has to take them as absolutely true as an exercise. And, um, for example, um, our first assumption is that we live in a conscious, loving universe. There is only love. Now, you could say, well, what the heck are you talking about? This is crazy. Obviously, there's evil, there's horrible things, there's all this, this stuff going on that couldn't be love. But if you take it as absolutely true and then go to our next assumption, which says the universe loves us unconditionally, it must give us everything we ask for. You see, what we don't understand is the nature of the love that drives the universe and that we are an embodiment of. And that is that it's unconditional love. This is not romantic love. This is not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you no matter, I'm, I'm going to be sweet and kind to you no matter what you do or what your soul is asking of me. I'm going to respond to you in the manner that your soul is, is magnetizing, is bringing forth from me. And I don't know what your soul wants. So I can only, I can only act out of my, my true nature and my, my response to you. And that can be, look, not so nice. 
sometimes, if that's what your soul is asking. Say someone, say someone came to experience abandonment, and they've got all these abandonment issues. And you know they they no matter what their mother or father did, they managed to get abandonment issues. And then so in their in their older life, in their midlife, it's time to work through this and not be carrying this abandonment that, that that's driving you from 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 the inside that you don't even know. So people come into your life to show you these issues, this, this abandonment. So, so I've made a commitment to you to go to the movies with you. But something inside me says, don't go to the movies. So I call you and I say, hey, you know, Susie, I, can't, I just can't, I can't make it tonight. Because I'm trusting my own inner knowing. I'm being told by the divine and by the, by the force of all of the oneness what to do, right? So I say, Susie, sorry, I just, you know, I, I just can't, I, I, I'm not going to the movies. And Susie says, I hate you. You're just like mom. You're abandoning me again. I'm never seeing you again. Right? And Susie goes off and is, is horribly hurt, and now I'm bad and wrong. But am I bad and wrong? And that's called love. That's called love. On the highest level, which is what Susie is creating out of her own consciousness. To love her, to show her, so she can go inside and feel abandoned, feel and know those feelings. And if she understands the the loving nature of the universe, she'll go, whoa, I'm, I'm feeling abandoned here. I must have abandonment issues. I'm going to look at that, you know, and, 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 and deal with that. And, and so that's, that's the, the, the first uh, two, two assumptions. Actually, our assumptions actually present a paradox, which there's only love. That's representing a paradox. And then the second assumption resolves that paradox by saying, yeah, there's only love, but the nature of that love is unconditional. You're so desperately loved by all of creation, you get exactly what you ask for. And there's no other way. And what you ask is you're asking through your assumptions. And and, and so that leads on to our, our next... Um, well, hang on, let's... Um, yeah. You know, we could go in serious depth into mm-hmm. each of these assumptions. Um, right. We did, a, we did a series two winters ago where we spend an evening every Monday night on two of the assumptions. So the two that Connie zipped through really fast there, we live in a conscious, loving universe, there's only love, and the second one, the universe loves us unconditionally, it gives us everything we ask for. Those two things are so profound that I don't think we could get through them in a whole week-long retreat of beating on just those two every day. We would never exhaust them. Because firstly... They themselves are so deep and so profound and so so paradigm altering. And secondly, each of us has such I could call it resistance or, or, or just these ingrained, unconscious assumptions that it can't be so. So how do we get see this is a challenge. How do we you can't just say, Hey, here's an assumption. It's a me- mechanical universe. And let's flip it. Oh, it's a, it's a loving universe. It's a conscious, loving universe. And how do we simply flip that from what we're all taught in school? The universe is a like a big machine. It's this mechanical device, just like animals and humans are mechanical devices, right? Even our brains are mechanical devices, and our consciousness is just an accidental outgrowth of the complexity of our brain. Oh, what if it's not, not like that at all? 
how do we, when we've had this inculcated into us so deeply for so many decades, let's say I'm 49 years old, and I've never heard the alternative, and all of this stuff is programmed, essentially programmed into me. It's my operating system. It is the, the, the axiom, the axiomatic paradigm, the taken for granted givens upon which I make all of my decisions. And we're not programmed by others. You know, we don't go into a we-they, because there's only one. We're not programmed. We we took these on because we looked around when we were infants, and we said, okay, it's my job to survive and thrive, and I'm going to look around, and I'm going to figure out what the rules are, and I'm going to play by those rules, because if I don't, I'm going to die. I'm not going to thrive. I'm not going to be able to grow up and have babies and, and further the human race. So it's it's it's... it's it's our own programming as as sentient beings to come and thrive. And, and when we see how people behave and how we've got to behave to fit in, we do it. So all of this this mess that we see is simply an outgrowth of the the logical mind operating on these misconceptions. It's just a house of cards on a false foundation. Right. So then what do you think about uh, just sort of the techno assaults, the electronic controls? I mean, do you ever feel that we're dealing with any real threats as a humanity, and especially now that we're crossing, we've crossed over this 2012 portal? Now, say, would, you, would you say that again? I want to get exactly yeah, what you're yeah, A little slower, well, Laura, sorry. Yeah. yeah, well, we've just crossed over this 2012 portal, and my mm-hmm. question is, do you, have you ever felt that we're dealing with any real threats as this, window period uh, is, is something we're in right now in, in, in relation to technologies and chips and implants and abductions and some of the things that are a little bit beyond our own thinking that seem to have an influence on our lives. Do you find that to be threatening or something that's more an illusion or something our frequency can handle if we raise it? Here you, here you go. That's the perfect question. What's the title of the book? The Trust Frequency. When we're in the trust frequency, there's no threat. There's no sense of threat. There's mm-hmm. a way of seeing everything incoming. doesn't matter what it is. doesn't matter if it's the whatever that is the word enemy is coming. There's no such thing as an enemy. Here come the aliens. There's no such thing as an alien. You know, it doesn't even matter if we die, if we get blown apart. It doesn't matter. We're all just energy. We're all just love. You see? I love it. Yes. And it's from, it's from, now, that's from a challenging place. It's from the highest, this book is written from the highest perspective we have been able to come up with, me and Connie. So, in a very real sense, if we can re- replace our, because everything you mentioned in that little list you gave was a fear, fearful or a fear-based concept, wasn't it? Right, whole, yeah, and a lot of people hold that, those thoughts, so. Yeah, and no, I understand that. So the whole point that Connie made earlier on is that we actually incarnated here into this realm, which is fundamentally based on fear. Most of the fundamental assumptions of current society, and I don't care what culture you come from, what continent you live on, what language you speak, there is so much fear that has been built in for so many generations. That is the challenge, to replace that fear with trust. Religion has tried to do it, and I'm sorry, it has not succeeded. It has no. given something, it has brought something. Science has even tried to bring something. You know, people who put their faith in science, 
in the belief that, oh, we're going to invent our way out of the problems. You know, we're, we're busy destroying... Yeah, Titanic is unthinkable. Right. Don't <laughs> worry about yeah. a thing. Because we're going to invent just at the last minute, just like Hollywood, we're going to invent something that's going to save our butts, you know? Yeah, like Kurzweil saying, you know, that it's technology that's going to take us to, to everlasting life. But technology what, has, a, it has its place. But he, what he doesn't understand is that, that, that our true nature is taking us there. You know, everything he says is going to happen, I believe, is going to happen, but it's going to happen because it's our true nature and we're going to, we're going to go there out of free will. So the singularity is what was predicted for December 21st, 2012, which happens to be the publication date of our book, if you look there on the, on the, uh, mm-hmm. I love the home page, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of stuff was expected. I didn't expect anything remotely like the kinds of things people were storing food and doing all of that. I didn't have that feeling at all. I honestly didn't yeah. have it because that was your question. I didn't have the slightest bit of fear. I felt that even nothing much was going to happen, the whole thing was sort of um, illusory, or that it was the beginning of something. I, I, I never really, I never really, I mean, I, I contemplated the idea that humanity could suddenly blossom into a whole new being because perhaps we did in the past perhaps you know i have a vague memory of swinging from the trees and swinging down into my ferrari and racing across the horizon you know but um <laughs> maybe another shift like that can occur Connie well, one, thing, wants to say one thing laura what we're saying is see all those that list of things that you you brought up we have the free will to choose where we put our attention okay and that is our gift. So we, if we put our attention on those things, those will be real for us. And we have, we have the right to have the, 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 the lousiest, nastiest reality possible. Okay? We have the right to that. We also have the right to the most, something beyond our wildest imagination of balance, beauty, abundance, beyond the beyond. But we have that free will, and we each individually have that free will. And, and, and we, we say it in our next assumptions. We say we create reality by the power of our consciousness. Okay? And we define consciousness basically in the next, in the next assumption, which is it's, we call them the seven A's. And this is still an answer to your question. Um, the, the seven A's are awareness, what our level of awareness is, our assumption, so these are the things that we have control over, logical, linear control over what we do, what our free will choices are, what our assumption is. Do we assume that, that, there's, that, that we're going to hell in a handbasket and that it's horrible and that humanity is the worst thing that's ever come on the, on the, on the, you know, into creation? Or do we understand that humanity is, is, is a divine loving being that came here to enhance all of creation? You know, it depends on our assumption, our perspective. And then our attitude. You know, what an attitude do we have towards something that's happened to us and, and for us? See, we don't understand that everything happens for us. We think it happens to us because the victim victim mentality is very powerful mentality. Mm. And and a very powerful position. But once we understand that it's a conscious, loving universe and there's only love, there's no victims. That's impossible. Yep. And, then, and then we have our, uh, alignment, 
you know, what are we aligning with? See, so if if you're talking conspiracy, if you're talking uh, whatever all that list that you gave us, you know, are you aligning with that by putting your attention on it? Yes, indeed, you are, and you're creating that in your world. That is the reality in the vibratory level that that your reality will play out in. And I I, I personally don't choose that. I don't well, put my attention on that. Right. Because I, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Go I was going to say. From the perspective of holding a higher vibration of solution, um, if one doesn't do that, they can easily fall into the pit. But I think if one holds a transformative, um, catalytic, forward-thinking, solution-orientated philosophy or belief, um, you know, one can do alchemy with it. But I, I fully, fully agree, and I really resonate with everything you're sharing. So continue. All right. And the next A is action. We see we have to act from that place of trust. And that's the real kicker. So, you know, still in response to your your question, you know, if we've got those those pieces there lurking and 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 bringing doubt into our our way of being, well, what if? See those two little words, what if? Well, what if Big Brother's after me? What if, you know, is all of whatever you said is true. Well, that is the Achilles heel. So what if you cannot go there? You've got to get in total trust. And mm-hmm. this is something that has never been on the planet before. When I was with Wallace one night after a sweat lodge, see, I'd always known that there's something coming on this planet that's never been here. That was, I can't remember how I got that, but that was something I was my knowing. And and he said after a sweat lodge, he said, this is Wallace Black Elk, Wallace Black Elk one of the, the great Lakota, Lakota elder. Yeah, the one, the great Lakota elder. And he he said, man has doubted the Creator since the beginning, mm. and that doubt has plagued him. Mm-hmm. And I wow, got it. Yeah. I got okay. If, and I knew it was something that's never been here. So since the beginning, because he has a shamanic memory that he could see the beginning and he can see the the future and everything. And um and so I got it right there. What's what's the opposite of doubt? Trust. Trust. I walked out of there knowing that what's coming on this planet is trust. How beautiful mm. was for me. Mm. And I and and so and then the, these pieces of this puzzle of this trust frequency and this understanding of have been coming to me ever since. And Andrew's brought so much more to it. Now, and a beautiful book on the subject. I don't, I don't want to belabor something, but I do have, have a question here. We're, we're, we're talking quite a bit about free will. Um, we're talking quite a bit about, um, you know, shifting belief systems. You, you, you don't just do that. It takes consciousness and awareness to do that. And yet, I'm hearing you say that at a certain point, the morphogenic field is just going to carry everyone into this. But that seems to go against free will. And so one day, the pedophile priest is being a pedophile priest. And the next day, he wakes up and says, oh, it's a beautiful world. And look where we all are. I'm, I'm just trying to assimilate all this. So, so share with me, how, how does this work? Well, the pedophile priest ultimately, um, doctor... Uh, the pedophile priest is actually, and this may be tough to take, 
but is responding. There are no victims, okay? So there's only love. There's only the soul's journey to wholeness. Different souls came on this planet for different experiences. And but but so, if they're not choosing free will, then then how they, how do they then move into that energy? I mean, so... But this, there is. This, this is a stretch because, I mean, we're watching a lot of people do a lot of wild things in humanity. I get that there are no victims, but, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's no a fine line to how it affects the collective. And I understand yeah. that it's all taking us somewhere, but I just yeah. have a little problem with this piece that just everybody gets swept up in it because that seems to then go against free will. Yeah, there are two aspects to free will, Dr. Dream, I would say. One of them is the personal free will and the personal choice we made. If you know, if we can go there, and that's a stretch, to go into pre-incarnation before we came here. If I knew that I was going to come in as a little Ethiopian person and I was only going to make it to two years old because there was no food, but that was my experience, and then I was going to come back to where I started, having grown through that experience, that is an extraordinary pr- perspective. Of, of acceptance, of, of reconciliation, and of not blaming the, the people who were unable to feed me or the people who abused me or the war, you know, the so-called victim thing. When you get into the trust frequency, suddenly there's no such thing as a victim. On the highest level, there can be no such thing as a victim or a perpetrator. As Connie just said, the, and this is a stretch, the person who is going to be murdered or abused actually creates, actually manifests the person who does that terrible thing to them. If you can take it from that perspective, and I've spent a lot of my life living with someone who had been sexually abused as a little girl, and so it's really, really, really tough, and I know that. And this pedophile factor is extraordinary. Now, um, I, I, I understand about the no victims, but but explain to me the free will if... If someone's not choosing to be- shift beliefs and, and the assumptions and everything's about love and they're not in that energetic at all, how does, this, how does, how does the morphogenic field just sweep them away? I mean, is, is this really what you're saying? I'm just... No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. Because each of us, you see, because our, our, our eighth assumption is there is no such thing as separation. It's a man-made illusion all of all of creation is one. So on the highest level, you have this unity, this oneness consciousness. On this individuated, indiv- you know, personal level, each of us has come to this world to experience that which we have either agreed to do or that which we create or co-create through our consciousness, either individually or collectively. Individually, in the case of the priest who decides to become a pedophile, or collectively in, in, the, in the case of, of, of a group who decide to go to war with the neighbors. These are, these are, these things that we perceive as problems are problems because of our fundamental assumptions. That priest has a problem. His assumptions are erroneous. He needs an operating system upgrade. That child who attracts, even though it's very difficult to say, wait a minute, how on earth can a little child choose through his or her free will to be abused in this way? It's, it's only from the higher perspective 
doctor that it makes any sense at all. And the guy who the morphogenic field sweeps up, he he said when he came, I want to go on this journey to wholeness. I want to become one with all that is. And so take me on this journey. So he gave this. We're saying that this is the overarching act of free will. And that circumstance, you see, one of our assumptions that goes along with the free will assumption, we say free will is an absolute law of the universe. And yet? And yet circumstance guides us on our journey to wholeness. So circumstance is apparently, uh, you know, just a happening out of our control. It actually loves us more than we do and takes us on a path that we never would have chosen with our lower vibration conscious free will. But we had already given permission for this circumstance, which is the loving universe, to take us to our soul's journey, to wholeness, and, and to our gifts that we promised to bring. Mm. They, we came as a we came in and we, we incarnated into a family of doctors. And and so we're expected to be a doctor because, you know, to make daddy proud and all that good stuff. So we go through and we expect that we're going to be a doctor. But, you know, in our private time, we're writing poetry all the time. But Daddy doesn't have any regard for poetry, so we never show Daddy our poetry. And then what happens? Well, uh, Aunt Susie, who was going to pay for med school, dies, or we slunk out, we don't get in, and all of a sudden, man, we are the black sheep. We are the worst. We are the biggest failure that ever came down the pike. So circumstances just told us, we're not going to be a doctor. We're going to be a poet. Because now we're out on the street. Daddy just owns us and we're on the street and selling our poems on the corner of the we're street. We're going to be Steve Ski Bums in Aspen, Colorado. Writing wonderful poetry. Anyway. But Dr. Dream, I don't want to sidestep your question because it's central. It's critical. Um, it's really important to understand consciousness. And this program, I believe, is specifically about consciousness. And this book of ours is specifically about consciousness. And consciousness is not something that is well understood. Everybody knows the word. And everybody knows the difference between someone who's like conscious and who's unconscious. You know, you hit him over the head and he's unconscious. But that's about as far as scientific or even psychological understanding goes. We can see that there's, there's consciousness. But if we look at... See, we really, really did a study of what is this phenomenon of consciousness on the highest level, there's universal consciousness, which is the pre-existing consciousness of the universe that brought all of this into being. That's from our perspective. But then there's human consciousness, and we just broke that down. Connie broke that down into seven words beginning with A, Mm -hmm. starting with awareness. Most people would say, well, what is consciousness? It's awareness. Go to the dictionary, look up consciousness, and it says awareness. And then it might say something like self-reflective awareness. So I'm conscious because I can look in the mirror and say, oh, that's me. But it's way, way, way deeper than that. And I said a little earlier, there's both individual consciousness and there's collective consciousness. There's only one. On the highest level, the Vedantists would say, there's only one. All of this separation, all these facts, I'm looking at a chair across the table from me here, that's an illusion. Quantum science and ancient Vedic wisdom says, no, there's not. There's, 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 it's all one, you know, and all of this is an illusion. But we humans have made an individual and collective decision at some point in some manner to agree 
on certain things. Let's call that the paradigm. The paradigm is a collection of fundamental assumptions or beliefs about the nature of reality, to return to the beginning. Mm-hmm. That set of fundamental beliefs is what has created everything that this beautiful list that you folks have just presented us with the alien abductions and the nastiness and the pedophile priests and so on are all traceable to those assumptions. That priest would never do that if his assumptions of the loving universe, etc., etc., as laid out in this book, simply would not do that. It would never occur to that person to behave that way. That little person who... Or if they followed the Bible. Yeah, yeah, but even that you see, the Bible is to me is such a such a mysterious thing. I I had to spend a little time in a hospital. I had a punctured lungs. I one of the things that wasn't a Bible, believe it or not, in the in the hospital room, believe it or not, was a Bible. I don't often get a chance to read the Bible, so I read the First Testament, or what's called the Old Testament. My goodness, it's just a story of a warrior tribe. There's more death and destruction in that book than just I don't read books like that. They scare the hell out of me. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, yeah. um, and, yeah. and that is what, and that is what Western culture has based itself on these, these, um, these thoughts and feelings and opinions and assumptions and beliefs that came out of warrior tribes in the Middle East. And look at how those warrior tribes in the Middle East are behaving right now. Why? Yeah. Because they have this beautiful concept of the one and only God. You know. Um, I I was a practicing Sufi for a very long time, so I spent a lot of time in Islam. And I'm just so sad at the way Islam is being abused and misused and misrepresented and misunderstood today, because that's not it. So if humans don't get it, they create something based on what they think they get, and what they create is this mess that we are trying to unravel. Okay. I get that. Now, just one little comment, and then we can go on. It's hard for me to believe that someone can just not address their life at the highest level and be rewarded for that. But I think this is just, um, from listening to you, maybe a little flaw in my like lower perspective, but it's just a tough one for me that someone can live their life Doing that, of course, there are no victims, but, I mean, let's face it, living at a high frequency, living at a low frequency are completely different. So someone can live their whole life at a low frequency, and then all of a sudden, not to any doing of their own, except we're not judging how they've lived, so I guess they've been playing their role, they get to be in the promised land, in heaven on earth, in the new earth, whatever it is. It's just a little hard for me. And then it also makes me wonder... Why yeah. then should any of us do the tremendous amount of um, effort that we're doing based on our mission and our path when we're just all going to go there anyway? I mean, right, I'd right, love to do my hunting for right. a vacation and not keep doing yeah. radio conferences and everything else, but that just happens to be our mission here. Yeah, I trust that you're doing your radio conferences because you love it and you're much happier doing this than being out being a pedophile priest or a, or a, or a soldier in the, in Afghanistan, for example, right? Well, I love it because it's why I exist. It's, it's as right. far as yeah. I have been able to go with the why of my existence. Yeah. yeah. So listen, doctor, so those, those people, that pedophile priest came here to do that, to play that role for those young boys who came here for that, for that experience. Yeah, that's, that's a much harder role. Imagine living yeah. with that. If you're at all conscious, a priest a priest is a priest. 
whether a pedophile priest or not. A priest is someone with higher aspirations. And that priest is going to suffer and put himself through his own personal hell. And that's the only hell there is, in my, in my opinion. It's the personal hells that we put, us, put ourselves through, and we tend to put ourselves through them because of our actions. Right. So the actual, you see, and the heaven is, is just the wake-up. So anybody can wake up. I mean, Judas had a job to do. Hitler had a job to do. You know, it doesn't make them... Not, it doesn't make them not part of maybe maybe a bad person from the judgmental Ooh. mind, but they are still part of the conscious loving universe because there's nothing else and other place to be. And even Jesus, you know, when Judas hesitated, Jesus said, uh, hey, someone here is supposed to betray me. Get on with it. You know, everybody has their role to play in this process. And and so what ultimately in the evolutionary upward spiral is that 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 the souls have done their work, that that, that there aren't going to be souls incarnating that need to die by murder and be abused, etc. Because, you know, we've played it out collectively and uh, and we've we've, we've come to this higher place for all of all of humanity. Well, I'm grateful for my role. Yeah, and, we, so the rest of humanity. and we are too. We bless you for doing that. And we're each of us doing, putting one foot in front of the other, doing everything that we can, every scrap of energy that we can summon up to bring about this change that we visionaries envision. Right, because we have to. Re- the conscience is what redeems whoever has fallen. They have to start to do that inner work in order to purify and get to their own personal heaven because, like you said, they're naturally going to be feeling, you know, a sense of guilt or shame that they're going to need to work through. So, anyway, it's all very intense and very well put and answered. My question, though, is um, how does an individual change their agreement so that they can avoid adverse situations that they may have previously agreed to, maybe, you know, before they were born? Or how can a person in the moment raise their frequency when they are in the grips of a fear or a programming? I know that's two questions, but I'm kind of throwing two questions in there to just give you a lot of free reign. It's, I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, if, if we made certain agreements to play certain roles, can we, with our free will and our conscious minds, once we are incarnated, change that and change just the whole way we're playing around with uh, some of these roles? And, and how, how much freedom do we have once we've incarnated based on the agreements we made previously? That sounds like a question about free will versus determinism, right? Yeah, because, I mean, if we, you know, said I'm going to come in and do this, like be a molester or whatever, or on on the high note, uh, a conscious light worker, um, at any time, is is it possible with our free will to change one's role, or is it pretty much you have to live it out is the only way you can really change it? I I would say a huge yes. I would say that we can wake up, we can shift course if our fourth assumption is correct, that a free will is a fundamental law of the universe, then the answer is obviously yes. We have the free will to change course at any time, to become anyone else we choose. We might go through a whole life being a miserable, depressed person and wake up. It could be the other way around, too. We have the freedom to manifest whatever we choose. Yeah, now, Laura... You know, you you know the thing about spirit timing, you know? Uh-huh. I, I'm sure you're aware of spirit timing. Well, see, the, the reason that everything comes in split-second timing 
you know, at the very last moment when you've given up all hope and then all of a sudden the money comes in or whatever it is, is because everything is based on free will. So they, everything shifts. It's a constantly moving um, uh, scene and we have to stay so closely attuned to our our inner promptings because we our 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 inner promptings tell us and circumstance tell us what to do and and we have the free will to align with that and do it and we or we have the free will not to do that so that's that's the whole key is is that that we have the individual free will and every action we take shifts the whole picture. So we all have to stand at attention, listening so closely and watching circumstance so that we can act in alignment. And, you know, so we're going straight forward and all of a sudden the circumstance or our inner propping says, turn right, okay? We've got to be ready to turn right. Even if we've set our goals and we said, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do that and I'm going to blah, 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 whatever it is, and I told so-and-so and they're all expecting me to do that and yada, yada, we have got to be so on it that when we get the signal to turn right, we turn right. And, and, and that's how we play our part uh, to, the, to the greatest extent in the, in the unfolding of this divine picture on, on the planet. But yes... Indeed, you can you can you can have any reality you want at any time. So you don't really. Mm-hmm. And there is there again, time in a certain sense. Time is an illusion. There's only this moment, and you can awaken in this moment to be and manifest anything you choose at the mm-hmm. highest level. Now, if you're weighed down and anchored by a whole bunch of things like guilt and false assumptions and you know, the misery that so many of us carry because we're so locked into the past and so afraid of the future. If we are in the moment in a state of trust, and the answer to your question is yes, you can become, you can blossom into anything you choose to become. Yeah, and, and the person who needed to, to die by murder and you were supposed to be their murderer and you decide not to be that murderer... What a bummer for the What a bummer for that person, but that person will manifest someone else. <laughs> or, or change or change. So you don't have to be that person's murderer. <laughs> or molester or raper rapist or yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. You can have that thought and say, I don't think so and go elsewhere. You do not have to do anything that your mind instructs you to do. You know, that's just another one of the wondrous illusions. Yeah, and, and so when the movie thing, when I could have said, well, no, I promised Susie I'd go to the movies with Susie, so I'm going to the movies with Susie. So then Susie will manifest somebody else to betray her, to abandon her, and it, and it doesn't have to be you. Right. So um, really good point. What, what are your thoughts on astrology then? Because I wouldn't say it's fixed. I mean, as an astrologist, I like to help people be liberated from the different forces that can seem somewhat controlling, but... At the same time, there's certain inevitabilities that come along with just just what we were born with or, or born into. Um, uh-huh. So what are your thoughts? What, what do you think of things like astrology and just destiny and fate and things that seem almost like they're inevitable no matter what we think? They're written in the stars. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think you have the choice to align with that or not. Right. You know? mm-hmm. So you know whatever. If someone says if you're doing an astrology reading for someone, and and you're getting something to say to them, and you say it, and they go, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's me, all right. You know, and and I'm gonna run my life from that place from now on. Or oh, that doesn't resonate for me. You know, I paid my money and took my chances, and thanks to the astrology reading and sayonara. You know, right. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 all free will. Yeah, that's what I encourage too. So, my beloved partner, Connie, she has a whole collection. You won't believe this. They're on her desk. They're really small and white, about two inches long and three-eighths of an inch wide. They're called fortune cookies, mm-hmm. the fortunes that come in them. Mm-hmm. Man, we go to a Chinese restaurant, she opens it, and there's the instructions for the week, you know? I run my life by fortune cookies. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, while we're talking about your lives, <clears throat> let's let's bring this home a little bit just to... The two of you, you've you've been on your higher consciousness path and journey for for decades. You two carry um, a really beautiful energy, and um, it, tell us tell us what all of this has done to you for you. Talk to us about the assumptions and belief systems in your lives, and what shows up as a reflection of that and the trust frequency that you hold. Well, uh, we say if you if, if if you don't want to walk the walk, don't write the book. <laughs> Good. Yeah. You know, since we first met Dr. Green back in Sedona in 2007, at which time, if you recall, we had the beautiful retreat center out in Page Springs. Yeah. And we had something approaching a million dollars in real estate equity, blah, blah, blah. Guess what? That's all gone away. We now have a very nice Mercedes Sprinter van, which is called the Trustmobile. That we and bought on my credit yeah. Got rebuilt. Yeah. Uh, but um, so, in other words, it's not material. It's not that because we suddenly decided to write a book about the trust frequency that we're multimillionaires. Does not appear to work that way. What it does appear very strongly to do is that whatever circumstance it delivers in our lives is just. It just is increasingly. One, it's been wonderful forever. I look back at my life and I'm just amazed. And I've been wealthy at times, you know, materially, and I've had nothing at times materially, and I raised five home birth beautiful kids on no money at all as, an, as a first-generation immigrant into this country with a, with a, a, a wife also from South Africa. You know, um, wow. live, live, put a lot of trust into, into, into my being all my life looking back. I can see that. But crystallizing and clarifying it into this book has, in a certain sense, put us through, through the ringer. It's mm. like, wow, okay, if you thought you could put your dependence on your, um, how about real estate equity for your elder years, good luck. So we've been stripped of that. And the challenge has been to truly trust the loving universe. I mean, it comes down to those four words, trust the loving universe. Mm. And if you can truly do that, for me, it just, the rest of it doesn't matter. The outer material side does not matter. We're in beautiful places. I raised my kids out in the Hamptons in, in New York, so we'll be back there shortly. I love it. I am loved there. They love Connie. We'll show up there. We'll sell books. We'll have book signings. We'll barely scrape through financially if to judge by what has happened in the past. 
because you know we don't even know where the money's coming from to put diesel in the in the in the in the, in the vehicle. But we are loved, and simply mm. known personally. My biggest challenge my whole life was I did not know that I was loved. Mm. At some point, and this was probably in the late 80s, early 90s, I realized that. I'd started a men's group, and I became clear about my issue. My big issue was uh, what was one of, uh, I called it faith at the time, or, or trust. I, I was challenged. I didn't know that I was loved. And I did a very interesting thing. I consciously went back to all of my previous, the ladies in my life, and actually tracked them down and learned that I was still loved by them and helped to have that reflection. And there was a particular woman I never told her. I was crazy about her for almost a decade. Never told her that. I was very disciplined for the first and only time in my life. And learned that I am loved by my fellow human beings as reflected in these beautiful females who have been in my life. That really helped me to know that I am loved. And now I am so clear that I am loved that the outward circumstances don't necessarily matter. I would prefer things to be a certain way, that they are what they are. And if I, I can accept them the way they are, I'm a happy guy. Yeah, and, and this whole bankruptcy, we went through bankruptcy and foreclosure and lost everything. And it was, I feel it was a cleansing it was a purification. See, the Hopi say it's a time of purification, and and it's a cleansing of cellular fear. I mean, for 20 years I've been living the, the trust frequency. I let my son drop out of first grade, knowing that he <laughs> came with a gift, and that the loving energies on the planet would give him everything he needs to become that gift. I knew that. This is the trust frequency. See, your mm. behavior. Changes your choices change. My son said, "Mom, my feelings tell me I don't belong here." And since Obi Wan Kenobi was my mentor, and he said, "Trust your feelings, Luke." I said, "I said, trust your feelings, Johnny." And I let him lead me into the unknown. And I and I said at that time, he's 26 now, 27. He was seven at the time, and at that time, 20 years ago. I said, you cannot have the word risk in your vocabulary. It's the Achilles heel of the trust frequency is the, even the, voca- the word risk. Okay, you can't have it. And, and I said that at the time. You know, if you let your son, if you turn your son over to the loving energies on the planet and you don't participate in this fear-based thing where if he doesn't get into the right preschool, he's headed. And, and I, I, I knew intellectually this construct that we presented here, and I was living it. I told all my IRAs in 1995, saying, okay, universe, I'm telling you right here, right now, that money in the bank, I do not believe that money in the bank is security. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm selling all my IRAs, and I'm going on a journey for peace and healing in the Americas, and they're doing my thing. And I did. But I want to tell you that when you are facing big banks in court, we, we went to court exposing big bank fraud, and Andrew was the... Um, uh, pro se litigant facing these big lawyers. We didn't have any money for lawyers, thank God, or we would probably spend it on lawyers and lost anyway. But anyway, the fear that, you know, we'd get these pleadings in the in the mail, you know, how these lawyers had responded, responded to Andrew's accusations that they were perpetrating fraud, which is, you know, in the news now. They're not being spanked for it, but, but we're, we were trying to, you know, get America to, to really oh, come up. They're settling for billions of dollars. Yeah, they but they don't, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, meanwhile, what I felt of, as far as fear was concerned, me, the fearless, felt fear 
Okay, you know, I I look at one of those things that come to me and I actually feel fear from those pieces of paper. And I wasn't even, I wasn't used to that, man. The guy who had experienced the fear, Connie, had never had fear. She just didn't quite know what it was, you know. And Andrew himself faced a terror. Can I say this? Yeah. He faced a terror of being wrong. Okay, that's the gift that that bankruptcy gave Andrew Bailey. What man doesn't have deep-rooted of terror of being wrong because every man is supposed to be right, right? I mean, they don't ask for directions because they're right, right? Because they can't admit that they, they can't admit to their spouse, whoever's in the car, that they don't know where they are or where they're going. So this deep root, he That's got access. We trust in the guidance and GPS unit of the loving universe, Alex. Right, but, but see, see, what we've got to get at and what does the earth you know, with all the storms and whatever it is, what we've got to get at is those deep-rooted fears. We have to face our fear. And that's what I believe this, that, that 9-11 did for us. Um, 9-11, I thought, and I've got a whole thing on YouTube, that 9-11 was actually about the opening of the human heart and the rebirth of America. wake-up call. The wake-up call, okay? Right. And I, I've got a whole substantiating evidence on the fact. But what happened was, we didn't go in. We went into love for the first year. I mean, the outpouring of love and oneness and all the shifts and et cetera. Then we slammed into more fear than we've ever been in as a country and as a people. And I realized that we have to face our fears individually and collectively to to cleanse our aura, to 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 move to this higher vibration. We cannot get there with this stuff sitting in our unconscious. Yeah. And one really important thing about the trust frequency and the, and the 10 assumptions is you can't just overlay them on an existing foundation that's unconscious. Or and, based uh, on fear. And the real challenge, and I do not have the answer to this, it's what our workshops are, are about, and it's an ongoing exploration of human consciousness, and it varies from person to person. If I have deep-seated beliefs that just take, for example, that I'm unworthy, that I don't deserve, and I can't just overlay a higher assumption on that. It doesn't work. I will be sabotaged because the more powerful is the inner dark one that's 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 unconscious that is capable of just undermining me. Well, it determines so, the vibration. It has yeah, a vibratory. So my vibratory rate, while it may temporarily go up, I, I attend a trust frequency workshop for a weekend and I walk out on Monday and I'm wildly elevated because now I'm in a conscious, loving universe. But by Wednesday, I'm starting to forget, and those old ones are reasserting themselves. It's work. It's not. I'm not claiming that this is an easy transformation. But right. I do feel that it's an essential one. If we're going to survive as a species and, and manifest the extraordinary destiny that we are capable of bringing to the universe, see, the universe is, is one entity, there may or may not be all sorts of other beings out there, but we, Connie and I, both feel that humanity itself is ex of extraordinary importance. And we have two ways to go, as the, as the Hopi prophecy says. You can take a certain road that leads clearly to destruction. It'll, you'll, you know, it's the world we're seeing in the newspapers every day. And there's another world, and they, they simply call it the Hopi way. What's the other term for it? Beautiful term for the, anyway, the path of peace or something like that. The, the path of trust is a, is, a, is a fundament, a fundamental vibration that will keep us up above all of the 
potential destruction that definitely exists in, on those on those lower realms. Once mm. we elevate ourselves, we're in a, we're in another place. Doctor Dream, you were talking earlier about you hear all these stories about how the planet's going to separate into sep- into different layers. We we hear that too. We've heard it from the native people. We've heard it a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it's going to manifest. I just know deeply in my trusting heart that whatever it is, it's going to be beautiful and the outcome, even on this planet, doesn't necessarily matter. The big, the big picture is so much bigger than that. That right. planet's come and go, they've come and gone for 14 billion years. It's just an extraordinary adventure to be an, a sentient being in this amazing universe. And what I say is, is that all of creation is awaiting the love in the human heart. Mm. That when we open our hearts and release the love contained therein, see, we're, we have our hearts are armored right now because it has not been safe for the human heart. We've reacted, and I believe that the earth has been in a, in the past, was in a, in a field of fear, that the dominant energy on the planet was fear. So we were all responding to that fear. Even, even the indigenous peoples who have a trust-based paradigm, they were doing stuff to each other that did not reflect their, 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 their paradigm, their, their cosmology, because right. they were influenced by fear as well. And and I believe that the Earth has moved actually in the harmonic convergence that it started to move into the the, the field the energy of love and mm. that starting to notice the, these things as as synchronicities and circumstance that starts to to work in our favor you know instead of the Murphy's law the the toast going turning upside down and landing butter side down it it lands butter side up and we're starting to notice that and we're starting to trust and when we when we open our hearts that is going to transform all of creation. And so one other thing I wanted to say, you said how does this play out in our individual lives? Um, one thing we feel is that, that so much of the thinking has kind of stopped at the, the level of the secret, you know, which is, you know, tell the universe what you want and you'll get it. Well, the secret was very important in, in letting us know how powerful we are and how powerful our thoughts are. And, and so it, it accomplished a great deal in, in letting us know that we can manipulate the unified field to get what we want. But for me, in my understanding, the universe wants for us more than we can fathom. Okay? And that's what I want. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to be telling the universe what I want, what my little pea brain thinks it wants. I want the universe... I want what the universe wants for me. And the only way I can do that is, is listen. And the Indians mm. talk listening to the silence. Well, you listen to the silence. You listen to your inner promptings. You, you look at circumstance. You know, the Indians, you know, they always watch the signs, okay? So you watch the signs. You, watch, you listen. And you even, even observe your own behavior. And, and, and you allow this amazing universe to, to flow through you so that it can take you places you can't can't even imagine. Exactly. I love that. That's really cool. Laura, number seven of the seven A's is that final word that Connie just used right now, allow. So the yes. first of those A's is awareness. The seventh is allowing, which is stepping back and allowing in a state of total trust, allowing the universe to do its thing because the universe is an extraordinary entity. I mean, there's no difference between our concept of the universe and and the religious concept of God or nirvana or heaven on earth, well, those are manifestations. 
Yes. But you know, the conscious loving universe is simply a baggage-free phrase that means the same thing as Allah or God or Yahweh or or whatever you want to include, include if you have Or me, speak. or we, or I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. We are it. Yeah. So, and you guys are beautiful. Thank you so much for having us on your show oh, and asking and challenging and yeah. asking questions. challenging questions there, um, Dr. Dream. That's one of the most challenging questions. It's, okay, this all sounds very wonderful in a sort of pie-in-the-sky, airy-fairy sort of way, but how on earth are you going to explain things like the victim type, pedophile priest and so on, the, the, those, those issues that well, you want to know. Well, he wanted to know that this pedophile guy wasn't going to get there without having to work on it. By the way, you guys aren't getting off that easy. We're not done with you yet. Oh, I've, okay. got, a, I've got a question. Um, we, we've talked a lot, and I'm sure we've mentioned, you, um, you both have mentioned a few things regarding what I'm going to ask, but there might be more, and so my question is, what important information is missing about the nature of reality, and how best can people integrate them and wake up to them, in a practical sense? Okay, so the missing information, you see, in a certain sense, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess missing information is a good term. You see, if we're, if we're, if just say we're operating on our roadmap is the wrong map. We're trying to get, we're driving from L.A. to New York, and we've got a map of Canada. And, you know, we're trying to find our way through Monument Valley using a map of Canada. It's not going to work. So it's more about false underlying assumptions and beliefs than it is, you see, yeah, if you have the wrong map, you have missing information. You do not have a map in front of you that shows how to get from Arizona to Missouri, right? You're going to be stuck up there in Canada, and you're going to simply be basing your reality on a set of not even outdated, they're simply false, erroneous assumptions. So that's the, that's the challenge, that's the problem as I see it. If we can ask ourselves a question and, and answer it, asking it's fairly easy, answering it's not easy. What do I truly believe about the nature of reality? Back to the very first assumption. We live in a conscious, loving universe. Now, every educated person on this planet has been taught in school that we do not live in a conscious, loving universe. The universe we live in is completely different. It's a mechanical clockwork thing, right? So these are the, this is the missing information. It is the actual nature of the, of the true nature of the universe, which is different we are proposing. It's radically different from what we have been taught. Right, and then once we get this information and it resonates to to our heart and our spirit, and and then the challenge is, is to act from that place. You're saying, how do you apply it to your life? Well, if, if new information comes your way that you resonate to, and your inner knowing, your inner promptings are saying, go for it, quit the job. You know, what we're saying to people is that if if you don't, you have the free will not to align with your inner promptings. But what your inner promptings are going to do is they're going to take you to that place where you couldn't even imagine the end result. What we're saying is, say you have a, you, you have this job that you go to to pay the mortgage and you hate it and you and you you know that if you miss a day, the the guy next to you is going to get your job. Well, you get a you get an inner prompting that says stay home today. And you're like, what do you mean? I can't stay home. I've got to pay the mortgage, blah, 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 blah. 
but this prompting is just saying, stay home, stay home. And you're like, okay, well, I read this book that said, you know, aligned with my inner promptings, okay, I'll stay home. So you call in and you say you're sick and you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs wondering what's going on and you're like, oh, well, I guess, well, the mail's here. I guess I'll go down to the mailbox and get get the mail. And you go down to the mailbox and you're sitting there, standing there, um, as Andrew says in the book, leaping through the Victoria's Secret uh, catalog um, or whatever uh, that was sent to the prior um, tenant. Anyway, you're standing there and who comes by but Joe who stops and says, hey, you know, Mark or Joe or Susie or whatever, I've been thinking about you. I want to, I was wondering if you'd like to go to Hawaii and head up my office over there. Well, you never even, would never even consider going to Hawaii. But here he is. This is the job, the dream job that you never even dreamed about. And if you'd been at your other job out of fear, you never would have been at the mailbox for Joe to uh, ask you and offer you this job. You see, you've got to put your body, it's actually a physical frequency. It's like a timing belt in a car. You've got to put your body in the place where the loving energies can find you. I mean, it's all love. But, you you know, if, if for this soul's destiny beyond anything you can imagine, you know, rather than being locked into the time is money paradigm and uh, the get your kid into the preschool paradigm and all that, you know, you've got to step out of it. Johnny Marlowe stepped out of it. He took his mother's hand and said, Mom, come on. And unfortunately, I was given enough information before he did that. Um, Kai Osaki, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad, actually wrote a book called If You Want to Be Rich and Happy, Don't Go to School. That book came, <laughs> that book came to me months before Johnny um, uh, made this uh, statement to me. And also, also, I knew Wallace Blackhouse would never been in a, uh, seen the inside of a school and was the most brilliant human I'd ever met on the planet. So I had information that could allow me to make that choice. But, so you're asking, how do you do it? Well, do it. You know, Nike says, just do it. Well, that's instructions from God. Just mm-hmm. do it. And you could say, oh, that came through Nike, and Nike's horrible, and they have slaves in their whatever, in their sneaker <laughs> factory. Hey, there's no um, victims. There's no victims. No, there's no victims. And besides, if you go into judgment, you're not going to hear the universe speak to you. Okay? Because if you say, oh, I'm not going to listen to Jeff do it because Nike's a horrible company, then God's talking to you through Nike and (laughs) giving you instructions. I just do it. (laughs) So here we are. It is 2013. We've we've done all the 2012. It's the beginning. Um, do you do you sense a time frame at all? I mean, we 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 read a lot about this three three and a half year window and and this and that. Are are you guys getting any of that? I know that some of the um, the indigenous uh, different indigenous cultures all have uh, different go. ideas about this. But but where's your belief system on it? Well, you know, we just to just to step back to December 21st, 2012, we spent it down in Boulder, Colorado. On the night of the 21st, we went to the Mayan Millennium Ball, which was amazing. Extraordinary costumed individuals along with a, a whole bunch of beautiful music. And the next day, we went to Barbara Marks Hubbard's um, hub at Boulder Integral. And we were in the midst of about 100 really special people 
just celebrating whatever that thing might mean. And I don't know if you know what Barbara Marks Hubbard did that day, but it was the uh, her Shift 2012 thing, and they did this massive global streaming phenomenon. Okay. And we were one of the hubs of those, and it was the whole thing at Agape in, in L.A. and so on. But um, Connie wants to interrupt me. So. No, I don't want to interrupt you. No, go ahead. No, but finish. Uh, we don't have much time left, and I just wanted to say, you know what, my answer to, to, to that is um, uh, I think we ought to just give it up about the, the, the trying to figure it out, you know, because, um, you know, people ask me, because I saw this shift. I know this shift is a given and uh, for me. It's, yeah. it's just a given. That's all it is. That's all there is. That's all there ever has been is, is, is this movement towards this higher level because it is our true, it's our true nature. And um, 20, the people would say, well, Connie, when do you think it's going to happen? And I would say, well, the only thing that's flipped on my screen, only date that's flipped on my screen is 2012, you know, Jose Arguelles, and then December 21st, 2012. So I'd say, well, whatever, you know. And now people are trying to figure it out. Let's just right. give it up and say, let's just get in the now and forget, now, forget the timing. I have and to. Forget it all and just become love and become grace and beauty. No, and I, I agree with you on that for sure. But but we do have just a little bit more time and I want to bring up a little something, um, just a mild controversy just to ask you about. Because um, I know you were uh, with Barbara Marks Hubbard and, and there was something in, in uh, the, the Boulder event and this and that. But um, so my question, I, I've been doing some, uh, have been doing some research about her and one of the things that she talks about is that not everyone is going and that it's like the sort of the elders decide. And literally, you know, we have quotes from different articles and things like that about it, um, you know, decides who gets killed. So it, it's kind of wild information, and, and we've seen it and, and this and that. Did any, any, does she still talk about this, or is this just one of her hidden uh, things? Oh, my God. Oh, no. Honestly, I have no idea. I've seen some stuff on the Internet. You know, we barely know her. When I first tracked her down because her name came up, she's been coming up for quite some time, probably sometime in the 80s, I investigated her. And it was a little Christian. And I said, okay, you know, that's but that's that path. And then I've more recently heard this thing about she is predicting the demise of an awful lot of the people on this planet. I've heard that, but I've never heard it from her. Apparently, she may have written that in one of her books. But, guys, we simply do not go there. It's I not what it. we do. She's really lovely in person, in presence. We're not like disciples of hers. It's just that there was this gathering in Boulder that we went to, and it was a gathering of really special people. And guess what? They love us. In fact, we're heading back down there next Wednesday, we're doing book signings and workshops, trust frequency work down in Boulder. And a part of that came through that gathering. It was just a place where really special people came together. And I That sounded like yeah. an amazing event. And let's just hold the energetic mm -hmm. of holding so much trust and love around her um, that um, these sway, wacky, far-off notions and everything um, – just get sort of swallowed up by the love that she, like everyone else, has in the core, and it's it's not about all this other stuff. Now we'll move right past this. I just want to ask. Let me just say something though, uh, yes. Mark, uh, Doctor Dream. Um, <laughs> listen, um, what I I listened very closely to Barbara uh, because she was present in Boulder 
the next month, uh, we just were down there and spent a day with her, and she was impeccable, okay? Because I won't have anything to do with anything that isn't coming from the highest level. And every word that came out of that woman's mouth and every single uh, facilitator that was in her, you know, her team of people that were putting this together, it was impeccable. It was only the highest, highest vision. And, and she actually had a had an epiphany um, in the '60s or so, and and she's been playing that out. She's she's you know she's one of all of us that that, that see something and and have have been given information or have a knowing, and she's been playing that out. So I I, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to hold us all in the highest light, of course. Now, what I want to know from both of you because we've got to close out is how do people find information on you? How do they see the film? How do they buy the book and how do they see you in person? So, seeing us in person is slightly more challenging than finding the book. Finding the book's really easy. You just remember the title of the book, The Trust Frequency. You Google The Trust Frequency. You will find it, and through that you will find us. And thetrustfrequency.net, not .com, but the .net. If you go to www.thetrustfrequency.net, you'll find our blog, which is okay at the moment. I'm building a whole brand new, outrageously lovely website and it's not up yet. I'm not an expert with this stuff, and we don't have a budget, so I'm doing it myself. Challenging, but you will find us through the trustfrequency.net, and that website is going to be evolving. You can buy the book. You can buy the film. You can buy Connie's Voices of America series. We're eventually going to have a membership aspect, and we're calling that the Conscious Loving University, and that's actually going to be a resource, a resource bank, if you will, it will be a place where you can go where if you don't have the time to spend endless hours and weeks and months researching on the Internet, it's going to be a carefully curated collection of material, say YouTube and different things from different teachers, different wise, wise ones, including our own stuff, that will be in, in what we're calling the Conscious Loving Universe. Yeah, Conscious Loving University. But yeah. to find us, it's, and, and you can just Google Connie Baxter Marlowe or Andrew Cameron Bailey or the Trust Frequency, you'll find us. We, we have nothing to hide and we have nowhere to hide. <laughs> and uh, and if, if people order the book from us, All right. they'll get a copy of the film included. Mm-hmm. And um, otherwise they can go on Amazon and get it uh, print on demand. And it won't include the film and you can get the film separately. But it's $20 and includes the film. If if it uh, comes through, an order comes through our website mm-hmm. to us, and we'll yeah. we take it down to the post office and give uh, it a little. That's, a, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful, great deal. I just can't thank you both enough. Oh my goodness, I know we could go on for so much longer if we had the time. It's been an absolute pro- pleasure. I can't imagine that anybody's not going to walk away feeling completely refreshed and totally positive and in a vibration of trust. So thank you. You guys are incredible. Thanks for well, you so much. Are, thank you so yeah. much for having us. Thanks, yes. thanks for doing this work. That's a real commitment on your part. I know you've been doing this for a long time. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. I, I just have to say, I have to yeah. say from, from 2007, I have loved you both and respected what you're doing. I remember you speaking about the trust frequency. I remember that having an impact on me. <laughs> I love yeah. you more today. 
it means the world to me that we're all still out there doing what we do at the highest level. And my, my love and respect is just, you know, more expansive than ever. And um, I, I, I'm hoping to see you guys along the way. Yeah, are you, are you in California these days? Yep, we're in Southern California in Ventura. Yeah. And um, let us know when you're coming and we'll set up an event. Yeah. We're yeah. heading. We're heading. Oh wow! We're heading for the East Coast, and then we'll be hitting. We're, we're, we'll be at the Ions Conference in Palm Springs, which is the towards uh, the third week of um, of July. And then we'll be bouncing through LA and up north to um, to a presenting up in Marin. But at yeah, Ions, we're presenting at Ions, we'll which we're really through. excited about. Oh, nice. And well, if anybody wants us in person, all they got to do is um, say, "Hey, we'll put on an event, and we'll get you there, and we'll show up." Yeah. And um, with bells on and. You know, so that's that's all that takes. And remember, nice. if, the going, if the going gets tough, remember four words: trust the loving universe. It makes all the difference. Well, thank you so much for everything, and um, we'll all be in touch. Okay, we love you guys. Many blessings. Bye.